Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, 200 years ago, in the summer of 1821, Florida became a territory of the United States under Andrew Jackson. Jackson moved with his typical vigor to change the trajectory of Florida and to move it from being a former Spanish borderland uh, to being a society that would evolve into a part of the American Deep South. We'll discuss veterans who were also farmers. The stories these veterans tell suggests an important relationship between working the land and successful transitions from war to peace. And talk about the Tampa glass scare during World War I. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the summer of 1821, the United States took control of Florida from the Spanish, installing Andrew Jackson as the provisional governor of the new U.S. territory. Florida would not become a state until 1845. James Cusick is curator of the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida. He's author of the book The Other War of 1812 and co-editor with Sherry Johnson of the book Andrew Jackson in Florida. I think most historians would agree that modern Florida uh, began or had its inception with the age of Jackson. And Andrew Jackson came to Florida three times, all three times to Pensacola. He captured Pensacola during the War of 1812. He captured it again uh, when he was prosecuting the first Seminole War uh, in 1818. And then he came to Pensacola as Florida's first American governor in 1821. And his tenure as our governor was relatively brief. Uh, he took up his post in May of 1821, actually from Alabama. Uh, he was not formally installed as governor until the official changing of the flags, which took place on July 17, 1821. And, uh, and he then made head, uh, his uh, Pensacola his headquarters. And he quickly grew disenchanted with being governor of Florida. And by October of 1821, was already back in Tennessee, uh, having resigned his post, where his friends were already grooming him uh, for a run at the presidency. Andrew Jackson was only governor of the Florida Territory for about five months, but Jim Cusick says that Jackson's tenure set the tone for what American Florida was going to be like. During his tenure, Jackson 
uh, held an embassy, an audience, uh, with representatives of Native Americans in Florida. Uh, and he met with Niamatla, uh, whose territory was around Tallahassee. And Niamatla was a Creek Indian who had previous experience, mostly hostile experience, with Andrew Jackson. And Jackson was actually grilling him on how many Creeks and Miccosukees were settled in Florida and where they were. Niamatla was seeking reassurance about what was going to happen. And he very quickly, I think, found out that he was still dealing with the man that was known among the Creek and Seminole as Sharp Knife. Uh, this was the man who had expropriated 21 million acres of Creek territory uh, during the Treaty of Fort Jackson, and who had hung a very prominent uh, Creek leader, the Prophet Francis, during the First Seminole War. And Niamatla walked away from that meeting with no assurance whatsoever that native land rights in Florida would be respected. Uh, and only with the statement that the native peoples would be quote unquote collected together in a place uh, so that they could be better protected. And I think that meeting very much set the tone for what the relations were gonna be between the state of Florida or the territory of Florida, the United States government and the various uh, Native peoples, Seminole, Miccosukee, and Creek in Florida. Also during his short stint as governor of territorial Florida, Andrew Jackson made clear his animosity toward the Spanish as well as the Native inhabitants. Andrew Jackson was very eager and anxious to Americanize Florida and to eliminate any vestiges of former Spanish culture here. And that showed prominently uh, in his feuding with the outgoing Spanish governor, Jose Maria de Callao. In particular, Jackson uh, prompted Callao to turn over uh, the files in a legal case that Jackson wanted to try involving inheritance rights. And when Callao refused to turn over that case, uh, Jackson uh, forcibly confiscated the papers from Callao's house uh, had a heated argument with him, uh, arrested him, and threw him in the jail in Pensacola, and then proceeded to preside over that case uh, himself under American law. Andrew Jackson had previously demonstrated his feelings for black people having invaded Florida to destroy free black settlements and take free people here north to slavery. Surprisingly, the first court case Jackson presided over in the Florida Territory was resolved in favor of the black plaintiffs. Jim Cusick. It was a case that was brought by a free woman of color named Mercedes Vidal. And she was charging that she and her sister had been cheated out of their inheritance. Uh, and she wanted uh, the case re-adjudicated and their rights re-examined. And it's a significant case because it occurred just a few days, a few weeks really, after Florida had become an American territory. And so it was the first testing of the American legal system by a free person of color uh, living in Florida. And in this particular case, the, the judgment went in favor of Mercedes Vidal. Um, however, this was just the first of many cases that uh, free blacks were going to have to bring in court in Florida uh, in defense of their rights as citizens and in defense of their property rights. And in many of those cases, they found that the law was very much slanted against them rather than in their favor. 
Jim Cusick points out that despite Andrew Jackson's brief tenure as governor of territorial Florida, he enacted a series of laws that established U.S. domination of the future state. He passed a number or enacted a number of ordinances uh, which set up the city governments of St. Augustine and Pensacola, established the regulations of the Custom House, established the counties and the county court system, uh, and laid out the rules under which the county courts would operate. Uh, and there was even an ordinance specifying that the Christian Sabbath uh, was to be attended with appropriate decorum throughout Florida. Now, other people really had to carry out and implement these ordinances and this framework that Jackson laid out because soon after he passed these ordinances, he, as I said, uh, was ready to resign from his office and move on. But I think in retrospect, um, if you look at the five months that he was in office as governor, uh, what we can say is that Jackson moved with his typical vigor to change the trajectory of Florida and to move it from being a former Spanish borderland uh, to being a society that would evolve into a part of the American Deep South. The Spanish established the first permanent European settlement in what would become the United States in 1565 at St. Augustine. The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783 when the Spanish regained control. As Andrew Jackson took ownership of Florida for the United States in 1821, governing the territory from Pensacola, St. Augustine also became an American city. Susan Parker is an historian and executive director emerita of the St. Augustine Historical Society. I would expect that many of the St. Augustinians in 1821 on July 10 could still recall that the Americans had invaded their territory only nine years earlier and savaged Northeast Florida, burning most of the countryside, as Jim Cusick points out so well in his book, The Other War of 1812. St. Augustine was spared, but little else was. Francisco Jose Feixo's home, and Francisco Jose Feixo had been one of those councilmen, had been burned and part of his family had escaped in a boat in 1812. Then the invaders exhumed the remains of the, of the family patriarch and spread them around. Who could forget an experience or a memory like that? Some of the most immediate concerns of the residents were, would they be able to keep the land that they owned and would they be able to worship as they had been accustomed to for decades? Andrew Jackson's new American laws created a difficult process for residents to maintain ownership of their land in Florida and showed a prejudice against Catholicism, which was the primary religion of St. Augustine. Susan Parker. The claims for the homestead grants out in the countryside, usually what we call Spanish land grants, dragged on for quite a while. Many of them dragged on for decades. Disdain for the residents' Catholicism was also a flashpoint. And within two years of the transfer, the St. Augustine Catholic parishioners feared they would lose their church to the U.S. government, the church building itself. And that caused quite a squabble, as you can imagine, as well. The arriving Americans, with the arriving Americans, there was a good bit of effort to focus on the structure of the government, but not really so much on governing. And perhaps that was just a reflection of the times. St. Augustine residents more than once sent petitions to the President of the United States to complain about his appointees or their activities. Perhaps Alexander Hamilton Jr., who was, of course, son of the Alexander Hamilton on the $10 bill, 
who was serving as district attorney in East Florida and was one of the land commissioners, may have received their strongest anger for threatening to use his federal post to punish residents who did not vote for him for territorial delegate. Bernardo Segui, who was the leader of this um, petition to be sent to the president against Hamilton, was also a leader in the fight to maintain the church. However, I will say a few of the holdover residents in St. Augustine quickly saw the wisdom of accepting American rule. I could think they could see which way this was going to go. The others were just holding on out of affection and their old status. Joseph Hernandez probably made the right choice. He was one of the um, city councilmen who had resigned soon after transfer, but it wasn't long before he um, was appointed to be Florida's first territorial delegate to Congress. And there were others, there were others as well. So this was a, and I think Pensacola probably was the same. That was not what Jim was talking about. If you were a holdover resident, this was not a good time for your land or for your Lord. We spoke with Susan Parker and Jim Cusick, who participated in the panel discussion Territorial Florida in 1821 as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, along with historians James Michael Denham, Jason Herbert, and Cantor Brown, Jr. You can find the entire panel discussion online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about our summer reading book sale with 50% off all FHS Press titles. There's a lot of great free content, including our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Here's to the farmer's wife. And a daughter, they gather around the table, send it up to the father. Somehow they get closer when times get harder. Here's to the farmer. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the University of Central Florida History Department is doing a lot to preserve the history of veterans in our state. Florida has one of the largest veteran populations in the country, and public universities in the state are more aware of student veterans than may be true elsewhere. At UCF, there are two large veteran-centered projects. The Veterans History Project collects oral histories from veterans and their families. Since its inception in 2010, the project has collected more than 600 oral histories, which are archived in riches at the University of Central Florida Library, and some go to the Library of Congress. The National Cemetery Administration's Veterans Legacy Program is a Veterans Administration-funded project that aims to connect veterans commemorated at national cemeteries to the broader community using cutting-edge technology and innovative pedagogy designed by a collaborative team of university professors, staff, students, and K-12 educators. 
Recently, the Oral History Project moved in a new direction in collaboration with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services and its Veterans Affairs Office to collect the oral histories of veteran farmers. At least until the post-World War II era, most military veterans were farmers. The United States had a small army in peacetime. Volunteers filled the ranks during the wars and returned home after the conflict. In 1865, the artist Winslow Homer painted the transition from war to agrarian peace in a painting titled The Veteran in a New Field. In the painting, a farmer is harvesting wheat with a scythe. In the corner of the painting is his U.S. Army jacket and canteen. The message is one of duty, duty to country fulfilled, and a return to duty to home and family. In collecting oral histories from veteran farmers, the project may seem to be challenging the economic and social direction of the country. After all, the number of farms and farmers steadily decreased in the U.S. over the course of the 20th century. But the stories these veterans tell suggests an important relationship between working the land and successful transitions from war to peace. And Connie, there was a recent virtual presentation where some of these veterans shared their stories of farming and military service. Yes, and I'll focus on two veterans who told their stories. Eric Autry, a black farmer, grew up to expect that citrus and service in the military pay the bills. His attitude toward military service as a stepping stone for his life is a common one in rural communities across the South. He learned the discipline of hard work on the farm, and when he joined up, he found military training was not as difficult as some of his colleagues experienced with their urban upbringings. Deployed several times, including service in Iraq and Afghanistan, he struggled with PTSD. Returning to farming, in his words, brought him back to himself. Other veterans echoed his sentiment. Working outdoors, hands in the dirt, nurturing the plants, tending to livestock, operated to reconnect them to civilian life. Each veteran interviewed also spoke about the assistance they had received from other farmers and through the various state agricultural agencies, including the Department of Agriculture and the University of Florida. Their farms are small with diversified crop mixtures. They raise bees and chickens. At least one veteran farmer described his slow transition from backyard garden to small farm diversified agriculture. In each case, the farm was more than a job. It had become a way of life, one in which they saw themselves making a difference. Savannah Turner, a Coast Guard veteran, described a different trajectory in her military agricultural life. Turner earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural education at the University of Florida and worked with 4-H through the Ag Extension Service before joining the Coast Guard. Now in the Coast Guard Reserves, she is again a student at UF, working on her Ph.D. in agriculture. She talked about the transfer of skills from military to agriculture, especially leadership and team-building skills. And she pointed out the diversity of job opportunities in agriculture, ranging from farming to agricultural engineering and plant and animal science. 
And Connie, in addition to the veterans telling their stories, the presentation invited students who conducted the oral histories to comment on their experiences, right? They did. And initially, most of the students were skeptical about the assignment and failed initially to see the connection between military life and farming. One student admitted that as he interviewed veteran farmers, he came to see the field as a place of peace, even a sacred space. The interviews with veteran farmers are still few in number, but hold promise for the future. The veterans interviewed believe it reconnects them to civilian life. Those listening to the interviews can be connected to the specific stories and to the national past. An important project. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Here's to the farmer. Thank you, boys. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, she has this look at public hysteria in Tampa during World War I. On April 6, 1917, the United States formally declared war against Germany and entered the conflict in Europe. At the same time, anti-German sentiments intensified across the country. In Tampa, Florida, it took on a life of its own. Andy Hughes is an associate librarian at the University of South Florida in Tampa in the library's special collections. He wrote an article in the winter 2019 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly titled War, Fear, and Bread in Tampa, 1917-1918. He is also the author of the book From Saloons to Steakhouses, A History of Tampa. While researching Tampa during World War I, Andy Hughes discovered that wartime anxiety, anti-German sentiments, and bread shortages fueled unfounded conspiracy theories about Germans planting glass in bread. I found a devil crab man, a vendor on the street, getting arrested for having glass in his bread. So, of course, the larger story was way more interesting than devil crabs. So I started to pull on that thread a little bit. And as I found more, I found that it was traced back to this bakery. And then there was a big brouhaha about it and a lot of controversy about just who was putting glass in bread. Was it part of this kind of war rumor or, you know, was it something bigger? And really, I was surprised to find that it was a very widespread thing all over the country. People were panicked about ground glass being put in the food supply by Germans, ground glass being put in medical bandages by German women who had infiltrated the Red Cross, you know, and a lot of just really far-fetched, harebrained ideas. By 1918, Tampa's flour supply was so low that bakers began using wheat substitutes and making smaller loaves of bread. The city council issued several bread ordinances in Tampa to regulate the weight and freshness of bread. It was in this atmosphere that the so-called glass scare began. Of course, you know, this whole ground glass thing, this is something that's been pulled out of fiction. You know, this is a great example of sort of American nativism fusing with this, this lively imagination to create this rumor. And then there was lots and lots of other rumors. You know, if you read some newspapers and believe them, there were Germans just running around, unhinged, burning down American cities and factories wholesale with no one stopping them. Somehow people in Washington don't have a clue. So it created this perception 
that we were living in a very dangerous, lawless landscape when, in fact, if you knew the real story, none of this stuff was really happening. So really, by the time that we even entered the war, you know, there was a lot of paranoia already, and then all this stuff was kind of ready to pop out. During the glass scare in Tampa, paranoia grew, even though there was no real evidence of glass and bread. Bakers in Tampa began sifting their flour three times to ensure there was no glass in it, and they even ran ads promising that their bread was safe and clean. One bakery, called Allen's Bakery, even introduced an automated facility to ensure that no human hands touched their bread before it was packaged. By having it put in bread and people thinking that it's in bread and food supply, it, it fused with this real paranoia and a real genuine paranoia about where their food's coming from, you know, and the, all these things were in place already. So a lot of people were moving into the city. They didn't necessarily trust the German baker down the street. So what I found was so interesting that this, this whole rumor hadn't really been explored very much. And very few sources even mentioned it after the fact. And to me, you know, how could any story of the home front be complete without this story? Because it just, once it entered the echo chamber of the newspapers, everybody is either talking about glass and bread and children bleeding out of their mouths or half the editors going, this is nonsense, stop printing this stuff. But it's a story that just had legs and just kept going on and on and on. And it's just so similar to the kinds of things that we go through today with false narratives about news stories and everything else and how they really seem to um, creep up almost organically and then people can't get enough. During the time of increased anti-German fears, the once popular German-American club in Tampa became a target. Built in 1909, the three-story German-American club was located on the corner of Nebraska Avenue and 11th Avenue. The club served Tampa's German and Jewish population and had over a thousand members. By 1917, all things German had fallen into disfavor, including German music. The German club's house band was forbidden to play or sing any more German music for the duration of the war. What's really interesting about Tampa's German club is its membership extended far beyond Germans themselves. So a lot of other people were joining the club uh, for probably business opportunities. Maybe they just liked the beer and the singing because there was lots of singing and there was lots of beer. So the German American club was, you know, it was an important landmark and a very respected place until the war happened. So the German American club was eventually sacked by the end of the war. It was kind of uh, looted and, and vandalized by a bunch of pro-Americans. But what I find most interesting is the day that the German club was ransacked, nothing appeared in the newspapers. All the newspaper people decided that it was probably a little embarrassing and that they decided not to cover it at all. And it wasn't until 70, 80 years later that Leland Hawes wrote about it and found an eyewitness who was actually there. So thanks to him for that, because otherwise we would have had nothing, not even a clue. But I'm pretty sure it happened probably in September of 1918, just a couple months before the war ended. As Andy Hughes points out, the conspiracy theories about Germans planting glass and bread said more about those who believed the stories without any evidence than it did about the German residents of Tampa. It really scratches the surface about what was going on in Tampa at the time and other places. I found so many of these ground glass incidents everywhere. It was just so pervasive and impossible to fight. And it just feels like we're stuck in that same story today, just uh, without the glass. It's easier to believe stories that are bad 
bad stories about people than good stories. And those travel the fastest. Those are the ones people want to talk about the most. And I think it might say more about the people hearing the stories than the stories themselves about what kind of story you choose to believe without any evidence. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.